0: You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen.
1: Indeed, democracy doesn't just happen. It has to be maintained. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm Rob Hutchinson and today we are continuing our chat with Hermann Pretorius. If you missed part one of, of the chat, make sure to catch up with the podcast. On our website at www.kai.fm. Now, Hammond, trust you on the line. How are you doing, sir?
0: I am very well, Rob. Thank you very, very much. And this time I promise not to push us over time. I apologize for that long-windedness. I'll keep it short and sweet this time.
1: I hope not. I hope not. There's a lot to talk about, to be, to be honest. But anyway, oh no, oh, that's what a wonderful week this has been. We've seen so many pieces of of legislation that have have been thrust in our faces, some uh, rather interesting announcements on uh, changes, change of heart in in the political space with regards to expropriation of of property and the ANCs now siding with the with the EFF on on certain aspects there, mm. and it really has been an an amazing time with so much legislation. Uh, yeah, I mean we touched on it briefly last week in in uh, computer amendments. And the bill of rights around the uh, firearm issue, but there's a lot more more going on. Um, yeah, what I was chatting earlier on about the underlying thread that that seems to be uh, presented in in all of these amendments, and, and I'm sure you would agree with me that is definitely political ideology, and pushed forward now by uh, perhaps a fear within. Within the governing party, around losing losing votes, and what are your thoughts on on that?
0: Yeah, no, I must say, um,
1: the
0: the thing is, um, at the end of the day, the the ANC roughly can be divided into two camps, and it's not the traditional two camps that that uh, the media always say. You know, you've got the the RET faction and the reformers. It's actually a com. The two camps are actually the people who want to take your money and the people who want to steal your money, um, and the circumstances of where we are currently um, does lend itself uh, to 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 both of these things. And let let's look at that for for a moment. So, if you are in the government and you are a dedicated uh, socialist, uh, perhaps you're Praveen Gordon or. Inoch you know, someone, uh, or perhaps even Cyril Ramaphosa, someone who has time and time again affirmed uh, socialist beliefs, uh, President Ramaphosa in Parliament saying openly that the state should be at the core of South Africa's economy, um, reiterating and endorsing the ideas of the National Democratic Revolution. If you genuinely believe that a socialized state where the free market is minimized to its greatest possible extent and where government control really is asserted, if you believe that's the solution to crises, then you are spoiled for choice in terms of crises South Africa currently face. So if you genuinely believe that a bigger state, a more aggressive state, a stronger state is the solution to crisis, then now is the time to really nail down on that conviction. So that Explains one half of the ANC's determination, and perhaps even an upping of the ante on things like expropriation or compensation, NHI, the firearms question. So, if we're going to be charitable and say these are good-natured, uh, uh, you know, good faith socialists, then that explains at least half of the behaviour we see from the ANC. The other half, of course, is the people who you know we might call the RET faction people who who realize that uh, they didn't come into politics to be poor they didn't fight apartheid to be poor it's their turn at the trough so they might just as well start eating and now after 20 years of some nice trough opportunities <laughs> the fiscal situation in South Africa is becoming desperate so the vultures need to pick faster if the carcass of the zebra is to deliver up those last bits of bone marrow available. So from both of these perspectives, I think you can see why there's this acceleration in ideological legislation and decisions.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And it, it's never been so, so blatantly obvious as uh, there's no doubt they they are afraid of, of losing, losing the grip and losing power. And that is definitely due to a lack of, of delivery on election promises and service delivery at, at local governments. Um, you mentioned there are definitely two camps in, within, within the ANC. How, uh, you know, but if you go back through, throughout history and, and not just the ANC's history, but in uh, similarly aligned, uh, ideologically aligned, uh, organizations, you you'll notice a, a, a common pattern there that there always seems to be a a rather excellent game of good cop bad cop being 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 played out um, in front of in front of the public, and perhaps that's because a communist strategy or socialist strategy always requires a, a hero and a villain, and even if it's within within the, the own party, if, if the party now suddenly uh, appears to be to be losing. Uh, popularity. The simple solution there is to to create a faction. And then what you do is, is you attract those voters who would have, uh, would have abstained from voting because, you know, loyalists don't, don't vote for a separate party. They abstain from, from voting. You create a, a faction, faction war in the party and you attract those people who, uh, were, were previously not going to vote because now they realize they have to vote for one or the other because they want their, their side to win. However, they, at the end of the day, they're voting for their own, for their, the party in general. So I don't know if there are really two camps there. Perhaps it's just a, a political a split or it's, it's a strategy to attract those voters. Yeah, but we'll, we'll never know what's really going on because so much of this happens undercover. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, 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 and the thing is at the end of the day, um, whether someone comes to, uh, you know, control your life because they want to enrich themselves or someone comes to control your life because they want to enrich the state. At the end of the day, you, it's like the difference between no compensation and no compensation. You might, it might start philosophically from one point or another but the citizen ultimately bears the brunt of you know becoming uh, a serf for either uh, a state or uh, a corrupt cabal or a combination of the two and uh, i must say one of my favorite uh, 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 quotes uh, about uh, communism uh, comes from uh, a little booklet published uh, I, it uh, must have been 1952 or something. Oh, 1973, actually. Written by a general, uh, Wang Sheng, um, who, who made this point that, uh, for the communist, there is no peace. It is only, uh, ideological war by another means. So people should be very, very clear that when we talk about the threat of state control and Things like the National Democratic Revolution, um, it, it isn't a dark room filled with smoke. It's an ideological framework where most South Africans, I think, have the instinctive ideological framework of thinking, "My goodness, I can manage my life better than someone in a remote capital." The the ANC and their ideological allies fundamentally have a different uh, belief, and its offshoots always end up harming. The citizen, and um, I think you you pointed out in your intro remarks, Rob, the 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 ANC now joining the EFF on this issue of state custodianship of land is actually quite a revealing moment, and it Mm. uh, gives us some significant reason to never believe another word President Ramaphosa says, even if it is good morning.
1: Well, absolutely. And that I think we're seeing more and more of, of, of the true colors shining through as we see more of these, um, legislative amendments, because they definitely do, uh, tend to bow down to the populist approach. And that's, it's understandable given, uh, given the, the history and the origins of, of, of the ANC. But you, you have to, you have to ask the question, and we, we can, we can see it because we're intimately involved. But the, the general public out there, when, when you tell them that the ANC is essentially a communist party, they look at you in horror and say, how can that be? We live in, live in a democracy. So in your opinion, is the ANC a, a inherently communist party? It's <laughs> a difficult question because today
0: it is, it undoubtedly is today, but there was a time. Uh, from the early 90s to the mid 2000s, where I think the the more left-wing ideas of a socialist communist ideology were pushed to the fringes by uh, Mandela and Mbeki, and the ANC for that time was quite pragmatically centrist, and I think one could almost say social democratic in the sense that they they believed that the free market should be allowed to operate to fund. Uh, a social welfare state. I, I, that's my understanding. I think, as, as best as I can word it, of social democracy. And mm. and for a time, it, it it sort of worked. But the problem, uh, and and kudos to to Nelson Mandela in 1992, in a quite brutal and uh, and brilliant political move, made a speech at Davos on the global stage, saying the ANC will not govern as a communist party. Of course, banishing the communists to to stew until they got the opportunity to ride the tsunami in uh, 2007 and regain uh, uh, policy control of the ANC. But for the intervening, you know, what, 15 years or so, um, we see Trevor Manuel's fiscal responsibility, fiscal responsibility that today would put him, you know, on the far, far right of the economic spectrum in the sense that he managed – to get the state to take in, in revenue more than it's spent. Today, uh, even with, you know, quote unquote conservative or right-wing politicians like Boris Johnson in the UK, that's, that's unheard of. If you were to say, let's run a budget surplus where the state gets more than it spends, you'd be considered some sort of ideological radical. And yet the ANC under Mandela and Mbeki, despite their failings of ESCOM, despite the massive failure of AIDS, uh, despite planting the seeds of what would ultimately become the destructive force that is BEE, managed a fiscal conservatism that allowed South Africa to prosper. And for a short while, we did. Um, for every shack that was built, 10 formal housing structures were built. Access to water went up. Access to electricity went up. The number of black people in jobs doubled between 1994 and 2009. And then that ideological reversal started to reassert itself. So I think the ANC was a Communist party for a long while, especially between the '60s and the '90s, then had a brief interlude of uh, you know a small accident of sense, and now we are seeing that ideological communism reassert itself, and I'm afraid there are very, very few opposing voices.
1: Yeah, that that is absolutely the truth And if you look at the, the makeup of, of the ANC It's the, the tripartite alliance Where you have the the communist party The SA Communist Party The KSATU and then the ANC itself From, from the, the SACP in, To drive the ideology through And then they use the workers union uh, KSATU or the trade union to to uh, further that further that agenda, where do we where do we see this ending up? Well, I must
0: say that's very much uh, in the hands of the South African people, um, because if we, I think I think part of the South African disease, as it were, and not, this disease doesn't discriminate on geography, or on race, or on culture, or language. The South African disease for a hundred years has now been outsourcing political thinking to someone somewhere in Pretoria. <laughs> um, I think that uh, Jan Smits, uh, you know, you can trace it back to Jan Smits' premiership. Um, I think you see it quite clearly throughout the nationalist rule. Um, and, and even during this, what one might consider the ANC's golden age of, of you know, actual economic growth, millions of of people uh, experiencing better lives. Even during that time, there was this idea that, you know, ah, oh, thank goodness we've got Mr. Ma- Mr. Mandela looking after things. Um, so I think the South African disease, if it continues unvaccinated, um, it will ensure that South Africa follows a very, very dark path of waking up too late. My, my, my boss, Franz Cornier, always mentions this instance of speaking to a Zimbabwean political analyst who said that he cannot forgive himself for telling people in the late nineties, early two thousands that things are gonna be okay when they, when he sort of suspected they weren't and he had enough reason to doubt. So are we going to stick to this disease, keep it symptom of you know, not engaging, being like a sheep in a Feltbrand, uh where you just, if you can't see the fire, the fire can't see you. Are we going to continue down this route of unengaged civic obedience? Or are we actually going to discover some bottle that I suspect is somewhere there in the South African soul store? That, um, no, the politicians can't have it own—they have it all their own way. Um, I believe in the social contract, and, and a contract consists of two parties having... Uh, rights and responsibilities against the other. So where we go from here? Well, we can either stumble along and we will see a disastrous next 10 years with the real possibility of failed statehood uh, by the 2030s. Or we can start engaging and train change that trajectory. But that's going to take something quite spectacular. Not impossible, and I think you see little green shoots of hope. But the question is, is it too late? To awaken the South African people to the fact that they are not and they do not deserve to be the sheep of a government somewhere in Pretoria.
1: That is, that is absolutely spot on. And uh, I will be playing that podcast back again because I think her statement there is is absolutely brilliant and should be, should be widely heard. I think the, the disease that you mentioned, that you mentioned there is uh, perhaps it is apathy, apathy Mm. from 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 the public who uh, and i don't know how to you know, correctly put that forward is it blind apathy or is it ignorant ignorant apathy or is it apathies born from um false hope we we can't quite work work out what that is because everybody knows there is something wrong everybody mm-hmm. knows it could it could be better yet we we tend to sit back and and hope that it'll sort Players, however, that is not the case. We live, we live in a participative democracy. We live in a representative democracy, and it is up to us to actually guide our so-called. Um, I, I hesitate to call them leaders every time because they're not. They're not <laughs> leaders. They're, they're elected officials which represent uh, our our wants and needs, and they're supposed to. We are supposed to guide them. Therefore, we actually the public are are the leaders in in that. But. We need to take control, and mm. there, there doesn't seem to be much, much hope in, in people. We, we, you know what always fascinates me, Herman, is that you can see people supporting a, a uh, sports team, the uh, rugby or 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 the soccer or whatever it is, in in the millions, in the tens of millions, but when it comes to a simple amendment like. Um the amendments to the firearms control act or or computer yeah. or even the electoral system uh, amendments to that silence silence yeah. and there 's maybe ten thousand or twenty thousand people that will actually have their say which is which is uh, a a poor show i mean really without without being actively involved in in the important things, the sports things and everything else are at risk too, and mm-hmm. people seem not not to be able to join join those nuts. but i'm rambling let's <laughs> let's take a quick break and then we'll continue conversation right after this we'll be right back after the break
0: you are listening to dear parliament with rob hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen
1: and welcome back to Water One Point Nine High FM. I'm chatting with Herman Pretorius in a continuation of last week's show. If you missed that, make sure to catch up on our podcast uh, available on our website. Herman and welcome back. So we were chatting about well, a, a lot of things there, but one thing I want to touch on is human rights and um, what they are where they come from and does government have a right to take them away
0: well i must say that is um uh how many hours do you have because that <laughs> that's it, it there's like one of the real fundamental questions and even south africa's judiciary is a bit schizophrenic on this point because you know briefly one can look at it from two angles either um human rights are those rights which a state Endows onto its citizens, and because the state is magnanimous and good, it creates and imparts these fundamental rights to its citizens. Um, and and the implications of that we can come to in a moment. The other view is is uh, the other way around, essentially that these rights exist uh, by the very fact of south of of people being citizens, being individuals with worth and dignity that 's the whole thing of endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, as the Declaration of Independence I think put it brilliantly flowing from thomas jefferson's pen so in south africa it's 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 either the question of the state gives you rights and by the social contract of a constitution, you are. Entitled to some rights because you, you know, uh, uh, qualify as a citizen or a, or a, or a person in the jurisdiction of the state. Or the other option is, of course, no matter what the state thinks, what the state says, what the governments, the courts, anything say, you have inalienable rights endowed by your creator. And I must say, I, I think Jefferson, who, who himself was a deist, um, pen that creator with a capital C and I think it's one of the most brilliant pieces of of, of writing because he's not saying endowed by your God um, even though I am a dedicated person of faith, I, I believe that's where it comes from, but it just cuts to the universality that whether your creator is the universe as it is, whether it is some absent God, whether it is a present God, the point is you come from somewhere and that same place where you come from, there your fundamental rights come from as well. So if you're going to look at what is human rights um, or what are human rights this is the basic you know, the, the, the tension, either the state grants them or the very fact that you exist means you're entitled to them and as I say in South African jurisprudence we get Conflicting views. Some constitutional court judgments say the Bill of Rights is a codification of pre-existing intrinsic rights. And other judgments, like the, the, the gun, uh, the GOSA judgment uh, uh, a few years ago, holds the opposite view, that, that you're imparted certain rights. And in that case, because a right to gun ownership wasn't stated clearly in the Constitution, it does not exist. And I must say, For all its ills, this is why at the end of the day, I think there is something like American exceptionalism because their Bill of Rights was the first document to state that from the very fact that you are a person, you are entitled to this uh, uh, sort of freedom, I think is is, is quite brilliant. So I don't know where's the answer. I do believe I know what's the answer, but how to convince the other side, that's a long one.
1: Absolutely it is. And and like I said in, in the right at the beginning of of the show, it's it's definitely an, an open ended discussion that will always remain open ended and perhaps without without conclusion, as it could be subjective and we don't, we don't really, really understand that if it's related to ethics or if it's related to, uh, religious beliefs or if it's related to state control. We really, there are just too many variables in, in what is your right and what, what you can and can't, can't do. And I don't know, it almost brings a, a libertarian kind of approach to it where everything and anything is possible and, and my right to do so is, is also possible. But <laughs> perhaps that's a, that's a discussion, as you say, for a whole series, uh, at a, at a later I, stage.
0: I think the word to describe that discussion is niche, because as fascinating as, as, as you and I find it, the, the challenge that we keep coming to, I think you as well as, uh, in, at DRSA and, and me at, at the Freedom Advocacy Network is we, we can't, you know, debate the philosophies ad infinitum with these things. These things are ideas that have real consequences. Um, and as fascinating as it is, where do these things come from? And important as they are, there is this challenge to say, you know, if we want people to engage, we must make sure that someone who has kids to worry about, a mortgage to worry about, a job to worry about, grandparents to worry about, that they can go, you know, yeah, I, I hear, thank you very much for the natural law argument, but am I going to have a home tomorrow? So it's fascinating, and it's, it energizes me, but I, I, I can't blame people uh, if they think that's a bit weird and it doesn't necessarily energize them. Yeah. But what we can arrive at at a practical point is that I think there's a fundamental belief in the human, you know, call it mind, call it soul, that there's a dignity to having a say in what your life is about. And that's why I have such a problem with things like the Firearms Control Act, because it's such a petty taking away of that dignity with no clear objective or reasoning behind it.
1: Without a doubt, without a doubt. And if, if we, if we had to go into the philosoph- philosophical side behind it, you've got to, you've got to perhaps separate uh, the Bill of Rights from Normal laws and, and legislation. Can, is it possible, possible to do that? At what point do you say, okay, this is a law or this is a right? Is there a crossover? What is the, what is the difference?
0: I'm, I'm so glad you're asking me all these easy questions. Um, no, <laughs> it's another, another really tough one. And, and, and the best answer I have is, is to, to, you know, to kind of fudge it and say that I'm going to quote Margaret Thatcher here where she said, A constitution needs to be written on the hearts of a people Mm. in the sense that you can have a document and you know, there are some spectacular documents, uh, constitutional documents in the world and you find many of them uh, throughout Africa, really wonderful, normative, visionary documents, but that just don't, you know, translate into anything real and whether A constitutional notion, you know, the Bill of Rights translates into something real. Translates into an actual protection of your identity, of your freedom, is dependent on the willingness of a people to say, "This document, I own it. It's not going to be owned. uh, It's not going to own me. I own this document. This document is mine to keep, to cherish." to make actionable. So when we look at the Bill of Rights and consider, can it be considered apart from the rest of the Constitution? I think on a, on a pure technical level, yes, because the Constitution knows that the Bill of Rights is a different part. It's not how does the state work, you know, where do you get judges from, how long is a presidential term, how many people are there in Parliament, how many provinces. It's not functional management. It's management of a value system. But that uh, codification, that writing down, that, that bringing together of a value system only becomes something special, something useful, if it is written on the hearts of the people and people don't take no for an answer. If people come to you and they say, we're going to take your property, if you don't have the gumption and the guts to use the constitution and to know the constitution and to say, I'm sorry, but you're simply not, um, then the, whether it is part of a broader, you know, schematic framework or blueprint for government or a separate normative document, it doesn't really matter. So at the end of the day, the question is, is the constitution, the bill of rights written on the hearts of the South African people? And I think If there's one failure of politics in South Africa um, from both the ANC and the opposition, and perhaps deliberately from the ANC, it is to have this notion of the constitution is something abstract, something for other people, something that doesn't really need to be written on your heart. And I think the opposition parties need to shoulder blame on two fronts. Number one that they have failed in 30 years to write the Constitution on the hearts of South Africans and make us cherish that document. And number two, not explaining with every second um, of every day that it matters whether you vote. It matters whether you're involved because too many people – Um, have just fallen out of the political system. And the data shows they've not stopped caring about things because there's this fantastic correlation, inverse correlation, between a declining voter participation and an escalating service delivery protest. So it's not that people no longer see the challenges they face. It's just the one mechanism that was sold to them 30 years ago. They think, was a bit of a dud buy. And the question is, can South Africans and opposition political parties rekindle that idea that there is merit in something like democracy? If they can't, well, then it doesn't matter what the Bill of Rights is. It's not going to be anything useful.
1: Absolutely true. And I think that we're going to take a quick break and then we'll touch on what what laws and what legislation are in absolute conflict with the Constitution and why there's such a drive to amend certain parts of the Constitution. We'll be back right after the break.
0: You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen.
1: And welcome back to 101.9 One Point Nine. Hi FM, it's been an absolute wonderful chat with 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 Hammond, and I'm sure we could go into part three, part four, part five of this of this series. But Hammond, haven't your listeners suffered enough? <laughs> Perhaps they have. Perhaps they have. <laughs> haven't had any complaints yet, though. Like No. <laughs> uh, on that note, if you want to send a complaint, send it through to <laughs> studio at high dot com. Uh, in 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 closing um we've we've noticed that there's a, a lot of conflict here and, and certain drives to amend the constitution because certain legislation seems to be in conflict with that. Um, how do does the ordinary South African take note of this and you know uh, be involved in trying to prevent uh, the erosion of of our rights
0: uh, I think a three step approach is useful be informed, in other words, as tedious as it is. Um, you know, sign up to the Parliamentary Monitoring Group email and see emails come in uh, to your inbox. Sign up to DRSA. Sign up to the Institute of Race Relations. Sign up to the Freedom Advocacy Network to get informed because, I mean, it's a cliché, but it's true. Knowledge is power, and if you don't have knowledge, you are disempowered. Step two become involved, whether that is sharing those ideas, promoting those ideas, studying those ideas, become involved. And number three, pressure, pressure, pressure. If you haven't crashed the email server of a government department (laughs) by simply not taking no for an answer, I think there's still some way to go to get you fully involved.
1: Absolutely, and that that's wonderful, wonderful advice there. And pretty essentially, what what we as organisations do is assist that we facilitate your participation, and we make sure that your voice is actually heard through the correct channels, and is actually counted towards decisions. But it's up to up to you as a listener to to participate and, and definitely have your say. <clears> Hamid, <throat> that brings us to the end of part two of of what was a wonderful series, a two-part series. And uh, thank you for your time. And I hope we get to see you or chat again very soon.
0: All the thanks goes the other way. Rob, thank you for your excellent work and a lovely day to you and your listeners.
1: Lovely. And that brings us to the end of of our show. If you just tuned in now and you missed missed the beginning of of the show, be sure to catch up with the podcast. It will be available on our website very soon. And that's at www.kai.fm dot com and as I said that's the end of it, join us next week at the same time and remember to stay democratically engaged, active and responsible thank you for your time